Welcome to The Savvy Sauce, where we have practical chats for intentional living. I'm your host, Laura Duggar, and I'm so glad you're here. Today's message is not intended for little ears. We'll be discussing some adult themes, and I want you to be aware before you listen to this message. Lehman Property Management Company has the apartment you will be able to call home with over 1,600 apartment units available in central Illinois. Visit them today at MidwestShelters.com or visit them on Facebook. Angie Landry and I met when we attended Richmond Graduate University. I'm thrilled to get to reconnect with her today and learn more how to become aware of the strategic ways that we can utilize our brain in order to enjoy a fuller sex life with our spouse. Off air, we noted that the more we study about the brain, a million more questions arise because we are never going to fully understand God's intricate and intelligent design. During this conversation, she's going to sprinkle in powerful exercises to try and recommend a few approaches to marriage that will deepen our marital satisfaction and enhance our intimate connection. Here's our chat. Welcome to the Savvy Sauce, Angie. Thanks so much for having me. Of course. Will you just begin by giving us a current snapshot of your life? Sure. So I am a licensed marriage and family therapist and certified sex therapist. I am in private practice here in Nashville, Tennessee, seeing couples and individuals. I also uh, run a center for integration here to train upcoming students out of our schools to incorporate spirituality and counseling. I've been married for 14 years this fall. We have three kids, um, 11, 7, and 4, two boys and a girl. And I always say my last one, the four-year-old, she about did me in, um, but I am so thankful to have her. The Lord has taught me so much through her. We love Georgia football. We do piano church. We hike a lot here in Tennessee. There's great hiking, kayaking, and we love to be outside whenever we can. Yes, you live in such a gorgeous part of the U.S. And professionally, you have so many fascinating certifications. So I want to hear a little bit more about each of these. First, will you elaborate on what equine-assisted therapy is and how it works? That is the question I get most about my certifications. Because people you know, ask, like, do you literally do therapy on a horse? And the, the answer to that is no. More accurately, the horse becomes the therapist. And just kind of a snapshot of what that looks like is uh, I'm certified through a, an organization called EGALA. And their program works with clients and horses specifically all on the ground. So there's no riding um, or anything like that. What it looks like is there's there's myself, the mental health professional, and then also an equine specialist. We stand kind of outside of the ring or just inside the ring. And then we have a client and a horse or a couple of horses in the ring. And we may give them like a task to do, um, like create an obstacle course and lead the horse through it um, or just grab something and brush the horse. And it is amazing how intuitive horses are because they're prey animals. They're constantly assessing their environment and reading people. 
And yet they're so compassionate. And so that reading of people becomes therapeutic as they step into where the person is and how they're feeling. Quick example, two of the horses we work with, um, one, he's a big white, what we call draft horse, which just means if you've seen the Budweiser commercials and you've seen how big those horses are, he's about that big. He's just enormous. And with myself or my colleague, he can be the biggest brat. Um, He's very dominant. He's kind of my way or the highway. But you put him in the ring with a kid and he lowers his head and he moves so slowly and he becomes just this absolute gentle giant. And he helps those kids with confidence issues and those who have low self-esteem to really find themselves in his presence. And it's just phenomenal to watch. That's really helpful to learn because clearly I'm not educated on any of this. I even pronounced it the wrong way. So it's equine assisted therapy. Yeah. Yep. And I know you also have gone through a John Gottman training So will you give us just a few things that you've learned from that? Oh, absolutely. John Gottman. um, So I've done level one and level two. There's a third level you can do. I haven't chosen to do that. His research is, you just can't argue with it in terms of couples. And the two things that I take from John Gottman the most are first, the four horsemen. He says there, there are four things that will kill a marriage dead. And I've seen it and I agree with it. And those four things are contempt, criticism, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And so in a nutshell, what those are, just, again, being critical of, you know, you you always, you never really eats at who we think our partner is, um, both within ourselves and for them, being defensive and not allowing um, vulnerability um, stonewalling is where I kind of, that coldness, you know, people come in, they say like, I, I just can't get through. They're just so cold. That's stonewalling. And then contempt is really just where people say, you know, you are such a terrible person and that will just kill a marriage within a heartbeat. And it's so sad to see. The other thing I learned from Gottman was that his, his concept of turning toward, which is just the concept of when my partner says something, whether it's, super small, like, hey, that's a pretty flower or something really uh, vulnerable, it's important to turn toward them and acknowledge them. And it just says, I see you, you're worth seeing, hearing, acknowledging. And I see so much where that turning toward is so healing for people. And what might that look like in conversation, whether it's something big or small that your spouse brings up? Sure. So a really small way, um, and I have couples actually practice this, is when your spouse comes home and, you know, it's the witching hour and you have your kids running around, you're trying to make dinner and all the things are happening all at once. Do you take a minute to just look at each other and say, how was your day? It's normal for us to say, like, how was your day? What's, you know, what, what happened? And then turn away and keep doing what we're doing. And halfway listen. But turning towards is turning toward them, looking them in the eye and saying, how was your day? And then giving your full attention to them 
when they answer the question, whether it's, it's fine or, wow, I can't believe this happened today. Let me tell you all about it. Um, and so I have, that's just a really easy way to understand that. And then additionally, you're a certified brain spotting professional. So what exactly does that mean? I could totally get on a soapbox here because I'm fascinated by the brain, but brain spotting is an offshoot of EMDR, which is eye movement desensitization reprocessing. Um, more people are familiar with EMDR than they are brain spotting. There are 200 muscles in and around the eyes, and 80% of our brain is dedicated to filtering what comes in through those muscles in our eyes. Our eyes and what's filtered in through our brain goes more directly into what we call the midbrain, which is where all of the parts of our brain kind of converge. It allows for just a deeper processing um, that trusts the client's um, experience and, and helps them heal kind of themselves. I'll give a quick example of this. All the time when I'm in session, if I have like five things going on in my head, like, okay, well, we could talk about emotions or we could talk about trauma or we could talk about behavior and I'm not sure cognitively where to go. There's such a thing called a thinking spot and it's different for everybody, but mine is kind of up and kind of in the center, no matter where I'm at, what room I'm in, if I can just kind of gather myself and look at that spot, my brain goes, here are the things and it just kind of outlines it. And I'm able to much more easily identify that's where I need to go. And that's just, you know, an example for me, it's different for everybody, but different spots we look in help us access different things. Okay. So let's just take that first example of the thinking spot. How did you discover where your personal thinking spot is? Great question. Um, a lot of the time, it's just becoming self-aware of what's going on within myself. Um, as therapists, we are taught to, you know, constantly be aware of what's happening within ourselves in a session. And so that's something I noticed early on. I didn't have a name for it, but I just kind of noticed if I'm having trouble deciding where to go in a session or I'm kind of confused within my own brain. I noticed I kept going to that spot. It would help kind of clear it all out for me. Then when I went through brain spotting training, I had then had a name for it. I was like, oh, that's what's happening. Um, but it's the same thing for when we cry or when we're feeling vulnerable, we tend to look in the same places. And that space is different for everybody. But if you just kind of become aware of where am I looking when I'm feeling certain ways, you'll begin to notice those things. This is fascinating. Now, are there any places where everyone, when they're looking in a certain place, that that's firing off things within certain parts of your brain? Not particularly. And that's one thing that I love about this approach is that it really gives the client the ability to go within their own story fully. My job as a therapist in that situation is not to guide them, but it is simply to be a positive, safe, attaching presence for them as they run through and, and work through their own internal conflicts and pain. So it's different for everybody. 
I never dictate, well, let's try over here because the last client, you know, accessed there. It's really tuning into this person in front of me and who God made them to be and what they've been through and just witnessing that with them. So what is the process then for coaching these clients of what brain spotting is and how it can help them? When I present brain spotting as an option for therapy with clients, what I typically begin to talk about is how the brain is formed and how our brain works bottom up. So if you could see me right now, you would see me go from the back of the base of my skull toward my forehead um, because everything is filtered through the beginning of our brain that connects to our spine, which is our brainstem. And that's our fight or flight, safe or not safe. It knows nothing else than safe or unsafe. And then it begins to filter through the different parts of our brain, our, our memory center and then our thinking center. And so often we get stuck in our thinking center um, of trying to make sense of what we have experienced. And the reality is sometimes what we've been through, the pain that people put one another through doesn't make sense. There is no good answer to why do these things happen. With brain spotting, I help them say, like, if we can help access those parts of your brain that filtered it initially, which is that brain stem, your brain wants to work things out. It was made to heal itself. That's what it does when we sleep. It goes through and it repairs neurons and you know, heals us. That's why when, you know, you have the flu, you go to bed because your brain needs to do work and repairing the body. The same thing happens when we're processing memory and painful emotion. Wow. And there is so much wonder. That's incredible. And now a brief message from our sponsor. With over 1,600 apartment units available and with every price range covered, you will have plenty of options when you rent through Lehman Property Management Company. They have townhomes, duplexes, studios, and garden-style options located in many areas throughout Pekin. In Peoria, a historic downtown location and apartments adjacent to the OSF Medical Center provide excellent choices. Check out their brand new luxury property in Peoria Heights overlooking the boutique shops and fine dining on Prospect. And in Morton, they offer a variety of apartment homes with garages, a hot downtown location, and now a brand new high-end complex near Idlewood Park. They're beautiful, spacious apartments with private garages in a quiet but convenient location await you in Washington. And if you're looking in Canton, don't miss Village Square Apartments. Stop by their website at MidwestShelters.com. So one more certification to cover. How were you specifically called into this unique role of becoming a Christian sex therapist? <laughs> I always laugh at that question because I was not. I'll give a little bit of my background to that. I grew up as a pastor's kid in a pretty conservative denomination, the Nazarene Church. It's an um, offshoot of Methodist Wesleyan where holiness was very much preached and living a life that continually sought to honor God. And so when I was in high school, you know, starting to go to college, I I just always kind of knew counseling was where I would go. 
I can't explain how I knew that, why I knew that I just did. Went through the process in my undergrad, I got a dual degree. I got a bachelor's of science in behavioral science, so psychology. And then I also got a bachelor of arts degree in religion because I knew the two, you couldn't have one without the other. And I didn't know where that would take me. I just knew I needed both of those. When I searched for a master's program to do my degree for licensure, I wanted a program that really specifically integrated psychology and spirituality. So I found Richmond. Initially, I was drawn to Richmond because of their spirituality and counseling certificate. So being more of a spiritual director. And I do have that certificate. But as I was going through the program, we were required to take a human sexuality class. Um, and then as a marriage and family therapy student required to take uh, sexual dysfunctions. And I learned like, this is really interesting to me. Like, I like thinking about this stuff. I like almost the justice part of it of, wow, the church in general has so warped, healthy, God-given sexuality. And I wanted to be a voice in helping people heal from that. So I went into the uh, sex therapy certification, got that. And I think it was really kind of solidified when I started my internship. I started working with a lot of clients with traumatized sexual past and learned like I can really handle that well. And then I wanted to see healing there. Um, so I think that the kind of convergence of all of that led me here. And when you say the church has presented more of a warped paradigm about sexuality, could you give a few specific examples and then the truth that you've learned to replace those false beliefs with? Absolutely. The first and foremost, as well-intentioned as it was, and I'm a product of this myself, but the purity culture of save everything until marriage. And let me very clearly state, I do think that the Lord desires purity. At the same time, this is strong language. I don't think that the Lord asked us to murder our sexuality in order to save it for marriage. And I see that so much with clients that come, especially being in the Bible Belt, where they come in and they say, I followed the rules. I did not X, Y, and Z. My youth pastor said, don't. So I didn't. I took the pledge and I got the ring. And now that I'm married, I have no idea how to turn it back on. And I go, that breaks my heart because that is not what God intended for sex. That is not what he intended for purity to elicit. And I spend so much of my time, I would say a really good portion of my practice at any given moment, helping those couples retrain that intimacy is good. Intimacy is holy and sacred, but within the context of marriage, it is something that can flourish and be erotic and beautiful and fun. And so what truth would you replace for either a single person who's believed that script their whole life or married couples now processing where that narrative has led them? Yeah, 
I would replace it with the notion that sexuality is good. Sexuality is more than genital to genital contact. Sexuality encompasses the core of who we are and God made us to be within our personality, within our gender, and within interaction with any single person we come into contact with. For the single person, that will be more boundaried, but it's also more boundaried for me as a married woman with anybody out there outside of my husband. So specifically for singles, I would say revel in your sexuality wholeheartedly, the way it causes you to think, the way it shapes who you are, your beauty, your masculinity. And then for couples, the Lord has so much fun built into the way he created our sexuality. A a good mentor of mine, I think you've had him on here, um, Dr. Mike Seitzma, says the Lord put the most prime piece of real estate with no other function than pleasure in the female body. Why would he do that? If he wasn't for pleasure, why would he give women an organ in their body that has no other function than to bring pleasure? And I think we've really lost that within the church. Thank you for sharing all of that. And yes, Dr. Mike is incredible. I'll actually link to some of his previous episodes. He's so wise. So as I think about all of your training, I have a question, but it's a big one. So take it wherever you want. What role do you think the brain plays in sex? I really and truly believe the brain is the center of it all. And the more I study about the brain, the more I realize how connected it makes us. We want to pretend sex is about chemistry and passion between two people that causes me to want or allow engagement with another strictly from the way my genitals respond. And so much of our culture's view of sexuality is geared from the way my body responds sexually. And I go, that's part of it. That's a huge part of it. But at the same time, with sex that is intimate, sex that is not just for the act of having an orgasm, the brain has to be involved. The hormonal and and the neural networking that happens within the brain lets me know with my intimate partner, I'm safe with you. I am seen as good by you. And that allows me to open up not just my body, but my mind and my heart and my soul to engaging with you, to becoming one. And from a faith-based perspective, I do think that's the goal. I don't think we want to believe the goal of sex is to have an orgasm or to get pregnant. And I go, yes, I think that's a function of it. I think sex is so much more made to bring unity between two people, but that can only happen if the brain sees my spouse as safe to attach to. If it doesn't, my brain is going to divert my body. It is going to block my body and 
it's going to cause a lot of havoc. And so is there anything that we could do or say that can positively affect our intimacy through intentionality with engaging our brain? So one of the main things I've learned from a couple of different um, people that I've studied is the blessing of affirmations. A lot of people you'll hear will write in gratitude journals daily for like personal use, like what am I thankful for? And that helps people pull out of depression. It helps people with anxiety. But I also think it's so important for us to do with our spouses because we're going to see all of the little things that get on our nerves and our brain is wired to filter in the negative. Why is that? It's bottom up. Safe, unsafe is the first question our brain constantly asks us. If it's safe, I can take a breath and I can be vulnerable. If my brain filters it as unsafe, then I'm going to go in defensively and I'm going to breed into any situation, anything that's negative so that I can prepare or move against it. So when growing up, my husband learned to squeeze two liter bottles like of Coke or whatnot um, with the idea that it kept the carbonation in. I did not grow up that way. And even though it is a completely benign, silly example, when I walk into the kitchen and I see a two liter squeeze, it irritates me because I was taught that actually decreases the carbonation and it makes it go flat. If I only filter in the negative itty bitty things as well as the big things about my partner, my brain, when I am engaging with them, will automatically be defended. So I have to work really hard and I encourage all my couples to do this. And we do this in session at the end of sessions. Tell me five affirmations about your partner. And as the brain filters in the positive, it causes the defensiveness to come down. And when the defensiveness of my brain goes, you are more safe than not, the ability for the brain to open itself up fully in that mind, body, spirit way is a lot more feasible. I love that. That's something easy to grab onto, that sincere affirmation. And I think of Mark, my husband, he is the safest place and even just a few really practical things that work for me to feel safe. And maybe this is different for anyone listening, but he remains curious with me in conversation. And that looks like him asking thoughtful questions. And then he does not interrupt when I'm processing. And I have to say that makes such a safe person. Absolutely. Hey everyone, by now I hope you've checked out our articles that are available at thesavvysauce.com. And if you sign up to join our email list, you'll enjoy free ideas and encouragement delivered straight to your inbox. Our hope is to encourage you to have your own practical chats for intentional living. So the freebies will oftentimes include questions you can ask on your next date night, safe resources to read to promote enjoyment in your sexual intimacy and marriage, or questions to ask yourself to promote spiritual growth. We hope you check out all the available reads at thesavvysauce.com under the Articles tab. What are other ways that our brain is affecting our intimacy that we're not even aware of? 
for every person, the brain is going to respond in different ways that unconsciously hijack our ability to stay intimate with our partner. I think of certain things like past trauma, whether that's sexual, emotional, physical, if we aren't aware of how that impacts us day in and day out, if we've experienced that, the brain is going to automatically defend us itself. And that can that can look like so many different things. It can look like avoiding sex. It can look like not speaking your mind. Just a million different ways that can come out. And some people will say, well, I've dealt with that. And I go, great, you have done really good work. We also need to be aware of how it continues to impact you so that when it comes up, you can catch it. I love that example of your husband of staying curious. That is such good communication because it comes from a stance of non-defensiveness, which validates your experience, your emotion, and, and empathizes with it. When we get defended in conversation with our partner, we tend to stop seeing their perspective, which then creates, again, that defensiveness. And our brain, because this is how God made it for survival, it latches on to that. And if we aren't aware of the ways in which we get triggered emotionally, it will come in and sabotage, not because it's meaning to push us away from our partner, but because that's how God designed it to keep us safe. I feel like what you just said is huge. You just gave us the keys that unlock that door to intimacy, which are affirmation and empathy. What do you find prevents well-meaning couples from having their sex life become as wonderful as God intended for it to be? I think it's exactly what we just highlighted. Bad communication skills, past trauma, current traumas and stressors that if we don't stay vigilant and being aware of, they will begin to sabotage. And I think that's where I go back to knowing how I defend, knowing how I stonewall, knowing where I internally or externally express contempt or criticism about my partner will erode the love and safety and attachment I feel with them. And so that turning toward comes into play so much because if I can turn toward and give my partner my attention and they can do the same for me, it perpetually reestablishes my partner is safe. But if couple, I mean, these are such simple things that we often forget. I mean, with one exercise I do with couples, it's a communication exercise. And at the end, I, I ask them to say, thank your partner for sharing. And they skip over it. And I pause them and I go, why are you skipping over that? You would say that to anybody else. You know, thank you for your opinion. Thank you for sharing that. But you don't say it to your partner, not because it's malicious, but because we automatically begin to assume, well, they know that. Well, that may be true, but the reaffirmation of it continues to allow my brain and my body to surrender to their love for me. That's helpful because I feel like that gives a starting place for couples to begin healing from their past conflict over sex. Angie, what are some of the main reasons clients come to see you for sex therapy? The, a lot of the reasons couples come to see me 
are for a myriad of sexual issues. I see a lot of couples for what we've already mentioned regarding coming out of purity culture, getting married, and then sex becoming a massive problem, whether that means I can't have sex, like my body's not allowing it because I've so guarded it that now I can't relax enough to enjoy sex, to those who are unable to climax. I also deal with quite a few clients who have sexual pain disorders. We have here in Nashville, we're super blessed to have one of the leading experts in female sexual pain disorders um, at the WISH Clinic, the Women's Institute for Sexual Health, uh, Dr. Brooke Fott. She is such a great resource for me um, because she helps so much with the physical aspect of, of sexual pain disorders. And then I come in on the other end and I help, okay, let's learn to relax so that your body can enjoy sex. I see a lot of clients with that. I see a lot of clients, um, whether individually or as a couple, healing from childhood sexual trauma. I see a good portion of men. Um, They're some of my favorite clients um, individually that are wanting to work through their trauma. And I think they are amazingly courageous for doing that. I also work with clients whose partners have sexually compulsive behavior disorders or what some call sexual addiction. I don't technically work with the addict themselves. I'll work with them in a couple's context, but I work more so with the partners and grieving the loss of the marriage they thought they had and how to learn to retrust and then eventually sexually re-engage. And just in general, how can couples listening today enhance their sex life in marriage? So when a couple comes in to see me, I am a stickler for doing a really good thorough assessment. I think part of that comes from my personality and wanting to kind of have my ducks in a row. At the same time, it really helps me to understand what typically goes on within uh, or goes wrong within a sexual relationship. The two things that I see couples kind of turn a complete blind eye to, couples are really good at nurturing touch. They, they hold hands. They give hugs. They might not be really meaningful, um, but they give a peck on the lips. And I would say practically spend more time there. Spend time, not just, oh, I'm holding your hand, but like, oh, this is this is his hand. This is the hand that picks up our kids when they cry. This is the hand that built our deck. This is the hand that comforts me when I'm sad. That's a whole different level than just, oh, I'm holding your hand. I love when my husband comes up to me and rather than just like, kissing me and giving me a quick kiss goodbye or whatnot. It's a whole different ball game. If I'm walking out the door and he comes up to me and he gently grabs my face and he just lightly kisses me. I'm like, oh, you see me. So I would say practically enhance that part of your relationship. Touch more. If you're walking by her and she's sitting on the couch or she's cooking dinner, just touch her arm. Uh, those affirmations, thank you so much for being who you are. Really expand that, make it rich and full. The other thing I would say is couples completely ignore what happens 
after climax happens. They go, okay, we did it. Time to move on. Take a good month and just sit in what we call the afterglow of sex. Snuggle up to one another and just rest in that connection. A couple of things are happening there. I think important to just mention really quickly, there's a chemical bath that the brain gives off when we've been intimate like that with our partner, whether we've had an orgasm or not. More so if we've had an orgasm, but not, you don't have, that doesn't have to happen in order for that chemical bath to happen, but it bonds us with our partner. And if we go, okay, that's good. Check mark. And you move on, you miss the opportunity to allow your bodies to just mesh together. And so I encourage couples take 10 minutes, even five minutes, if that's all you got and just lay with one another, share what you enjoyed And that sets up the relationship to start all over again with intimacy. So practically the beforehand and the afterwards. Going back to kind of what we talked about at the top of the episode, you and I met through Richmond Graduate University, which does a great job of integrating spirituality and psychology. So what are a few spiritual truths that you've learned as it relates to intimacy and marriage? Through the training that we got at Richmond, I learned that there's so much more that God is okay with than he's not, as long as it's within the context of love and connection and intimacy, unity being the goal rather than the next climax or the next high. Yes, he has such an abundant feast for married couples that... I think when it talks about that threefold cord, that's a huge part of marriage and intimacy. So growing in intimacy with our spouse probably can happen simultaneously as we grow in our intimacy with the Lord and see what he advises because he did create us and our bodies. Yes. Angie, where can everyone find you online or book an appointment with you? Um, you can find me online at restoration counseling TN as in Tennessee.com. Wonderful. We will link to that in both our show notes for this episode and our resources tab. All that can be found at the And we are called the savvy sauce because savvy is synonymous with practical knowledge or discernment. And so is my final question for you today. What is your savvy sauce? Affirmations, affirmations, affirmations. Feed the positive about your spouse and remember that they have a story as well. Amen. I love that. And thank you for all of the years of work that you have poured in and devoted your life to this work to really benefit others. It was fascinating to learn about the brain's connection to intimacy from you today. So thank you for being my guest. Oh, and thank you so much for having me. This is such a great podcast. I know it helps so many people. Thank you for doing that work yourself. Oh, thanks, Angie. One more thing before you go. Have you heard the term gospel before? It simply means good news, and I want to share the best news with you. But it starts with the bad news. Every single one of us were born sinners, and God is perfect and holy, so he cannot be in the presence of sin. 
Therefore, we're separated from him. This means there's absolutely no chance we can make it to heaven on our own. So for you and for me, it means we deserve death and we can never pay back the sacrifice we owe to be saved. We need a savior. But God loved us so much, he made a way for his only son to willingly die in our place as the perfect substitute. This gives us hope of life forever in right relationship with him. That is good news. Jesus lived the perfect life we could never live and died in our place for our sin. This was God's plan to make a way to reconcile with us so that God can look at us and see Jesus. We can be covered and justified through the work Jesus finished if we choose to receive what he has done for us. Romans 10:9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. I pray someone today, right now, is touched and chooses to turn their life over to you. Will you clearly guide them and help them take their next step in faith to declare you as Lord of their life? We trust you to work and change the lives now for eternity. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you prayed that prayer, you are declaring him for me, so me for him. You get the opportunity to live your life for him. At this podcast, we are called Savvy for a reason. We want to give you practical tools to implement the knowledge you have learned. So you're ready to get started? First, tell someone. Say it out loud. Get a Bible. The first day I made this decision, my parents took me to Barnes & Noble to get the Quest NIV Bible, and I love it. Start by reading the book of John. Get connected locally, which basically means just tell someone who is part of the church in your community that you made a decision to follow Christ. I'm assuming they will be thrilled to talk with you about further steps, such as going to church and getting connected to other believers to encourage you. We want to celebrate with you too, so feel free to leave a comment for us if you made a decision for Christ. We also have show notes included where you can read scripture that describes this process. Finally, be encouraged. Luke 15.10 says, In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The heavens are praising with you for your decision today. If you've already received this good news, I pray that you have someone else to share it with today. You are loved, and I look forward to meeting you here next time.